Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we are starting another new series. We are going to be doing several weeks on the story, the Old Testament. We're going to do several weeks as a survey of the Old Testament. So obviously there's 39 books of the Old Testament, so we're not going to do a week on each book. Uh, tonight will actually be the only one that we, we do that with, and we're going to do that with the book of Genesis, an enormous and a very detailed and substantial work, 50 chapters, um, and so many stories that we're all familiar with, so much theology that runs through the entire rest of the Old and New Testament, and really the foundation of existence in general. And so I think it deserves a week by itself. If any book ever would in the Old Testament, I think it's Genesis. So tonight, I'll be doing that lesson. From there on, we'll move into a series on the Torah, and then on into historical books, books of poetry and wisdom, the prophets, and so on. I think you'll really enjoy this. We've been doing this in our class at church. I think it's been a really awesome opportunity to see uh, books in a thematic sense, more than getting down into the details, but rather looking from 20 or 30,000 feet. And I think you can gain a new appreciation for these books. So tonight, Genesis, and we're going to start in just a few seconds with myself going over Genesis. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so let's jump into Genesis. So we're about to do a lot of weeks on the Old Testament. And I don't know, like, I guess, like, take a little straw poll here. Is the Old Testament something that when you hear that that's what we're studying for a while, is that exciting or is that not exciting? I like it for what it's Well, you're the one that suggested it <laughs> about a year ago. Will's, uh, Will's already told me, thanks, Kayla. This is your fault. <laughs> this is your fault. <laughs> Yeah, if you, last year, Caitlin, we asked for feedback, and she mentioned that, and we're like, yeah, it's a good idea. So we did it. So here we are. So very good. Sorry, and thank you. Does anyone have the uh, opposite kind of feeling? Be, I mean, you're stuck with it. I mean, you don't have to come, but is there anyone that when they hear the Old Testament, you're like, oh, does anyone have that feeling? It's okay if you do. You can be honest. Okay. I guess no one wants to say it. Um, I think there's probably times in my life where I would have felt that way, almost like, oh, I think I already like, kind of know what the Old Testament has to say. Um, I see it kind of present in when I'm planning to read the Bible, and if I try and do like a Bible plan, I get always bogged down or stuck in the mud, if you will, in the Old Testament. Sometimes I'll skip through it. Like this year, as an example, I'm reading through the Bible, but I just chose to do the New Testament. I was like, well, I'll focus on the important stuff, you know? Um, I think if you looked at the sermons that are preached, you know, every Sunday, 85% of what's preached is going to be from the New Testament. I think that's probably accurate in today's Christian church. Um, I think it's popular to segregate the two, to act like that they're completely different, uh, when I don't think that's really accurate. I think you'll hear things like, I'm a red-letter Christian, you've probably heard that, or to focus more on the teachings of Jesus, but maybe not the teachings of Paul or, or what the Old Testament says, or to act like we should unhitch ourselves from Old Testament theology. That was a famous preacher that said that. Um, and uh, you'll hear maybe like the idea that I like Jesus, but maybe God I don't like as much, you know, th things like that. I think it misunderstands God and his character. I think it whitewashes who Jesus was and why he came. And I think it's true that um, Jesus is inextricably linked to the Old Testament. And I see a lot of head nods, so I think some people agree with that. But I think it's true that a lot of people would not agree with that. And I think you might find a lot of people in today's church that would say, why even look at the Old Testament at all? Or that they're embarrassed by it in some way or whatever. 
Um, so in what way is Jesus linked to the Old Testament? Well, through Abraham. You probably know a lot of this. A lot of you guys grew up in the church, but I'm going to go through some of this. Matthew 1. I think this is always a funny thing when you like open a New Testament. I've heard this joked about. Like I heard a stand-up comedian talk about. So I picked up the Bible. I was at the, at the hotel, and I picked up the Gideon's Bible, and I said, I'm going to open it up and see what's going on. And he started making fun of how Matthew 1 is just like so-and-so begat so-and-so. And he's like, well, this is boring. So, you know, they flipped on to the next thing. But it starts with the genealogy, which I think if you understand Matthew, it was written to Jews. To them, it would have been very important, and they would have, it would have meant a lot to them. So that's why it starts that way. But Matthew 1, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's all linked up. Um, as we'll see, God makes a covenant with Abraham that is fulfilled with Jesus. Um, I'd also just say that it's part of the story. I think, you know, if you're like a Marvel fan or a Star Wars fan, when those movies come out, you see people like watch all the movies like in a marathon, and it's like... If we can do that about those stories that we care about, like surely we can read the Old Testament and take some value in, in that anthology and those stories that were, were there and that were important. Uh, probably the, the worst reason of all these to care about the Old Testament, but I think it's part of the story, so we should care about it. And that's really the title for this is the story, the Old Testament, and then we'll do the New Testament as well. Um, so uh, I'd be remiss in, in talking about Genesis and not bring up kind of the scientific things that come out of this. and. We're medical, dental, and all that, and so obviously we have questions about the science. There's a lot more we could kind of go into. We could probably do a whole night on, you know, the creation narrative and what it means and looking at the little details, and I guess, like, in short, what I would say, we're not actually talking about the creation narrative tonight. Uh, What I would say is I feel pretty strongly that it doesn't matter what you think about the creation narrative and the details of it as long as you believe that God did it. Um... And that it really happened, you know. Um, I don't think it matters that it was in six days, or if those were six thousand years, or that was six billion years. I, I don't think that's what it's trying to say or get at. I have my way of interpreting it, but it changes a little bit. So I kind of vacillate between thinking it's kind of like a pure science thing to then, well, maybe it did happen in a short period of time. Like I, I don't know that it really matters. I think it's a hill that's not worth dying on. Um, I think it's good to be aware of all the different ways of thinking through it. And if you find someone that's like a naturalist or that's like really like science heavy, I think it's okay to concede a lot of the things. I don't think it really matters. Um, I think the universe began to exist and that God created it. I think that's the most important thing. And that I think he created man and woman in his image. I think that's, to me, those are the big things. So, um, but let's kind of go down the list. These are some principles that we would say are true. These are from David actually, but, and I'm sure he got them from someone smart too, but uh, we would say that all Holy Scripture is authoritative and true in what it teaches. So along those lines, I think this is the beauty of something like Genesis 1, where it's, you know, and we'll say this in a second, it's number two, is Genesis is not a science textbook. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's not, a th- it's not exhaustive on what would have happened in the creation period of time, or that it could have happened over billions of years or thousands of years. It's not trying to be exhaustive. It is authoritative and it is true, that effectively God created things in an ordered way, you could say. Um, but it's not a science textbook in the sense that it's not going to go into the chemical makeup of these things as they were created. Uh, that wouldn't have made any sense to someone three or 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. Uh, it needs to be something that would make sense to people of all times. And in a 1,000 years, it wouldn't be up to, to, to scruff or st- snuff. What do you say, up to snuff? Um, and so I think it, it is supposed to be a timeless uh, depiction of God being at the center of creation. 
Um, we'd say too also that the best information that we have from modern science indicates that the Earth is old and there is a relationship between species. Um, and so that kind of concedes some in terms of the theories that we have right now. But I think, you know, as I think of science, you know, it's, it's really easy to take like what we understand about science today and act like we figured it all out. But if you look at history, you'd see, you know, every hundred years, it's basically completely different the way we think about things. And so um, I think that these are true things. I don't think we have theories in place that answer these exactly or that ever could. Um, but I think it's okay to be realistic about science. I think the worst thing to do is maybe to bury your head in the sand and just take the Bible completely literally, it, it, you know, enforce that it is a science textbook, I guess I would say. Um, it's not trying to be that. And so I think if you put too much into what the Bible is saying about science, I think that can be a problem. In the same way that if you say it's not saying anything about science, I think that's a problem. And that it's somehow separate, that religion and science are completely separate. Um, or to say that the, you know, the, the Genesis narrative is just all literary, that it's not real. I think those are uh, equal and opposite problems. All right, so number four, we should seek to understand what the Holy Spirit through the original authors was intending to teach. I think that's a huge one that we won't dive into too deep, deeply. Um, I think sometimes that can be hard to tell, but I think that should always be the goal. We shouldn't go to the scripture with something in mind. We should read the scripture and then allow it to speak to us and, and do, that, do that prayerfully. And I think this is important. If there is an apparent conflict between science and scripture, there are three possibilities. The first possibility is our understanding of science is incorrect. Second possibility, our understanding of scripture is incorrect. And the third possibility, there is a resolution that we are unable to discern. And so I, I you know, you look, you know, the past six, seven hundred years of science and religion and how they sort of, you know, sort of fought back and forth, you could say. There are times where understandings of science were incorrect. There are times where understandings of Scripture were incorrect. And I think it's safe to assume that we, as we sit here right now, both of those are probably true. And I think there's some things that we'll just never quite understand or know. Um, I don't think it takes away or detracts from the things I said originally about God and His role in creation and both the creation and the sustaining of this existence. So... Um, all right, and the Genesis is teaching things that are much more important than science. I think this is why Genesis 1 is just Genesis 1, and then I think it then moves into a very personal narrative about the creation of man and woman. I think it's almost like, all right, so this is how it happened, but let's move into the important stuff. So that's what I think. And so uh, tonight, we'll actually spend probably most of our time in Genesis 12 through 50 as we talk about specific characters, specific patriarchs. 1 through 11 is very different from 12 through 50. We'll get at that tonight. Um, but Genesis 1 is something that, I mean, I've literally sat through weeks in a class on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's some really incredible stuff in there. I think there's some really interesting ways that how creation could be and why it's written in the way that it is. Um, the literary framework concept is something I think is really interesting that in the first three days there are basically spaces created that are then filled in days 4 through 6, which I think makes sense. I think it helps to answer these questions of, well, how could flowers exist before there was, you know, a sun and all this kind of stuff? Well, I think it's, again, it's a way of summarizing things in a, in, in a literary sense. That doesn't take away from the fact that God created it. Um, and then, of course, God could have created it however he wanted to. So um, I realize that leaves some questions unanswered, but I, I think we could kind of talk till we're blue in the face about what that means and not have an answer. Okay, so this is the poster 
I'll be honest, we're not doing the actual videos that go through the details of this, but I have the posters and they're awesome. So you can keep them as a resource. We have posters for the uh, all the Torah. So we'll get those to you. David's gonna be teaching, I think, the next two weeks on Exodus, Leviticus, we'll have those posters. We're not gonna go kind of line by line, but I just love having these things. So again, there's a book if you decide that you, you ever wanna have that in the future, you can get that for yourself. Um, but we'll, we'll look at that here in a little bit. So here is Genesis 1 through 11. Again, it's separated from then Genesis 12 through 50. And what you'll see is, is that Genesis 1 through 11 is definitely more of a kind of like a 20,000 foot view of the world and of God. And then it zooms in to Mesopotamia into God and Abraham's family. And so it, it really focuses then on like basically four men and their families and their story and their narrative. And we'll, we'll get into that tonight. Uh, but in 1 through 11, we'll see that uh, God makes a good world for humanity. And then 3 through 11, you see sort of this downward spiral of uh, what human sin does in God's world. And then he sort of like finds a way to refresh that or reboot that through these, uh, these patriarchs. All right, so I'm going to jump into this video. And the volume's not going to work at first. So I'm going to start it over. And uh, this is going to be a video on 1 through 11. I think it's about five, six minutes long. And I love these videos. So I always say that, but I love them. So. The first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. All right. So I love that video. That was one of their earliest videos. You can kind of tell it's a little bit more quaintly done, but still really effective, I think. All right. So I want to look at some key themes in Genesis's, uh, Genesis's, Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, the first of these is that God is creator. I think we know this, but just to kind of focus in on this is, is that Genesis tells us that God stands above and apart from his creation. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, we could also say that as our creator, God has authority over us. He knows what is good for us and is worthy of our worship. Humanity possesses, here's your blank, the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. And Genesis teaches that we are created in the image of God, and that conveys on us worth and responsibility. Last year, we did a little lesson on the Imago Dei and the image of God and what that meant. In short, it's hard to know exactly. It's not really in the Bible that much. It's interesting because it's a concept that's talked about a whole lot. I think it was uh, John Piper in the, like the 70s or 80s wrote like a thesis on it or like a big essay. And he basically said that it should follow from how little it appears in the Bible what our emphasis on that topic should, should be. It's basically like we shouldn't make it as big of a deal as maybe we do. But I think what we learned from it in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 9 shows up a couple other times is, is that we are distinct from the rest of creation in some way, whether it's in physical appearance or spiritual similarity or in some sort of a uh, sort of God-given responsibility, you could say. We are created in the image of God in some way that is different than that of this floor or certainly like a lamb or a bird or something like that. Um, and I think that, that follows. I think also the Imago Dei and that concept is a really good foundation for Christian ethics. And so if every human is created in the image of God, that has a very deep and profound impact on how we treat others. And I think we understand that, I hope. Um, all right, human sin leads to separation. That's a real key word if you're talking about the gospel. Okay, separation is a big deal. Uh, Genesis teaches that the results of sin are cosmic and catastrophic. Sometimes we think sin's not a big deal. 
but it is. Um, Genesis 3, we learn about you know, the serpent and it tempts uh, man and woman, and then they take the fruit, and that's the first sin. Uh, after sinning, they become ashamed, they realize they're naked, they realize that they're in sin, they even hide from God, which that doesn't work out, and then they're sent out of the garden. So that's the fall. Uh, John Piper says, uh, if you choose independence instead of God dependence, you will lose the pleasure of the garden and God with it. And I think that's probably the, the history of humanity is trying to define good and evil for ourselves and really being terrible at it um, and trying to be dependent on ourselves out of pride and losing because of it and being pushed out of the garden in a sense. I think that's pretty true. And it leads to suffering for ourselves. And so we're separated on a sort of a cosmic or a spiritual level. We also suffer, I think, on a physical level and on a spiritual level when we sin. Um, and then four, Yahweh responds to human sin. So he brings both justice on rebellion and he gives grace in the midst of sin. This is what we call the tension of the gospel, that God can be just and holy, but he can also be gracious and loving. Okay? And it's through Jesus that he remedies that tension. Okay, let's move into, uh, oh, and I had little slides for all those. Sorry, everybody. Look at all that. They were so good, and, and David created them. Look at all those naked people. It's kind of weird, David. Um, I do like this, that it shows kind of the different sins uh, that you see in each of these sections of Genesis, the consequences of those sins, and then the grace or the way in which God redeems those sins. And those curses. So rebellion, we get land that's cursed, and then we get a promise of redeemer. Murder, societal breakdown and death. Then we get some good people, Enoch and Noah. Um, I like that the land is corrupted, so the flood is there to cleanse it. And then from that comes a covenant with sort of a new creation. Um, Tower of Babel, we get scattering, but then we get a blessing to all nations. So I think that's, that's there's a beauty in that. I'm sorry, David. All right, so Genesis 12 through 50, we'll jump into this. Um, and so a few of the, like the themes that we see in this, there is this verse in Genesis 12 that's a pretty key verse. I don't know when David, when he talked on uh, 1 through 11, he mentioned this verse as well. Um, but this is uh, God's covenant promise to Abraham. Obviously a huge part of Genesis, a huge part of the entire Bible as it is linked. And uh, it is this, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. <coughs> there are two recurring themes, and we'll see this as we look at each of these patriarchs. We will see that Abraham and his sons fail over and over and over. And then secondly, as they fail, God is faithful to his promise that same promise from Genesis 12 to both, and these are your blanks, rescue and bless. So despite their failures, God will be uh, consistent with His promise and His covenant to rescue and bless them. And it, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see uh, the ways in which ultimately God will rescue us through His Son, through a Messiah, and that He will bless us ultimately through that. So Exodus 19, we learn that Israel is a kingdom of priests, uh, and that's to show other nations what God is like. Isaiah 11, Psalm 72, we learn that this promise will be fulfilled in the Messianic kingdom. 
Okay, so that, that's like the beauty of the Old Testament is seeing the ways both from a literary standpoint, which we'll have some of those examples, and also just in a physical standpoint of how this leads to Jesus. Um, and that really it's all written, like all the prophets, all the patriarchs, it's all written to point towards Jesus. And you could miss it, but once you see it, then it's, you know, as you're reading the Old Testament, like this is awesome, it's cool. It's not unlike a really great, like, long-form television show or something. Like, it's, like, this will make sense later. You just have to, you know, you don't jump into season four of a show and be like, yeah, I don't care about the other ones. You know, you watch them. All right. And then the last thing I would say is this idea of present suffering and future glory. And this is really a concept from Paul's writings, but I think it applies to the patterns that we see in Genesis. And uh, you'll see this in Genesis 50, and this is, we're going to talk about with Joseph, but, uh, and this is Joseph speaking, you intended to harm me. Uh, as you know, Joseph was, was sold into slavery. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so Joseph was able to save the lives of his brothers that sold him into slavery. And this is what he would say. And the same, I think, is true of, of our lives. Our, our present suffering, that's true, but there is future glory. Um, and I think that, to me, is the pattern of, of Genesis and of life. All right, so look at, if you have your posters, you can kind of look at it and see... Um, on this side, and I can't point at this TV, and it always frustrates me, so I'll point underneath it. Um, you can kind of see these three little sections. And so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's sons. Okay, and so we'll look at each of those sections in turn. Okay, let's get into, uh, oh, let's watch this video. I know we already had another video. We're going to watch one more. I'm sorry, Caitlin. I'm going to do one more video. Just kidding. We're going to watch this video, and then uh, we'll jump in on Abraham after that. Let me pause it. Okay, all right, so let's jump into Abraham. We'll talk a little bit about each of these guys. The really interesting painting there. All right, so you probably know all these, these people, but I'm gonna give like a quick bio in case you don't. Um, Abraham's called by God to leave the house of his father, Terah, and settle on the land originally given to Canaan, but which God now promises to Abraham and his offspring. There are so many great stories that I don't have time to cover. We've got stories of like, we're not even getting through like a lot, or Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it touched on Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac. We don't talk about that tonight. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, which is a really great story. Obviously, ties in to Jesus if you've not figured that out. Um, we're going to look at each one of these, and we're going to ask this question of what were their failures, and then what was God's faithfulness? I think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at this. And so what were Abraham's failures? Well, he had a lot, okay? He lied about Sarah being his wife two different times, which is weird, and I can't imagine getting away with that. Uh, not once, certainly not twice. Um, and then he didn't believe God, so God told him that he was going to give him a son, which I get it. They were really old. Um, but what he did was he slept with his handmaid, which was kind of Sarah's idea, so it's a little bit on her, I guess. Uh, but the short version is he didn't trust God, so that was one of his failures. Okay. Now, God was faithful despite these failures in that he gave Abraham a covenant promise. So it could be said that this pagan man that had some land and had some livestock that didn't really trust God or his promise was still given this covenant. And it's a pretty amazing thing that really sort of plucked out of obscurity. God picked this man and uh, chose to save humanity through him, which is pretty cool. And that's effectively the story of the Bible, too. Not just Old Testament, but New Testament is taking flawed men and women and, and bringing beauty out of them, okay? Just like you and just like me. All right, so I wanna talk about circumcision, because why not? Um, but it comes up, 
It is a sign of the covenant, so your blank is circumcision. But I think it's interesting, like, why circumcision? I think if you actually think about circumcision, it's a pretty absurd idea, okay? It's mentioned nearly a hundred times in the Bible, so it is a central idea, and it's both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see in the New Testament in Romans 4, Galatians 2, Galatians 5, um, in Genesis 17, 10 through 11, here's where it starts. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, still, why did this have to be the sign? Could we not have gotten a tattoo? <laughs> Could we have had like an earring or like shave this part of our head or have sideburns or something? Um, well, circumcision for these reasons. It was a distinguishing characteristic. In those times, not to be too vulgar here, but they had public baths. There would have been less ability to hide that. Um, now, history tells us that other cultures practiced circumcision, Syrians, Phoenicians, Egyptians. So maybe that's not exactly why, but it's one of the ideas. The second maybe gets at it a little bit more is that it's the shedding of blood. And God, uh, time and time again, required blood as a sign of the covenant. I think you see that, again, over and over with all the sacrifices, of course, with Jesus as well. There's something about the blood that is, that is a, a core aspect theologically to this. Third thing is, is a sign of the covenant. And I think this is interesting is, is that Sarah did not get pregnant until Abraham was circumcised. And he was circumcised at the age of 90. So again, kind of awkward, okay? But uh, he, she could not get pregnant until after that. All the men of Abraham's household were circumcised. A uh, guy, Michael Heiser, says it like this. Everyone in Abraham's household witnessed the miracle of Isaac's birth. And from that point on, every male understood why they had been circumcised. Their entire race, their very existence, began with a miraculous act of God. Everyone was reminded of this when she had sexual relations with her Israelite husband and when her sons were circumcised. Circumcision was a visible, continuous reminder that Israel owed its existence to Yahweh, who created them out of nothing. So I think that's kind of a good take on what that would be. All right, so I got a little bit of a question. Oh, that's not it. Uh, on uh, how a circumcision is similar to baptism. Uh, how would you say it's similar to baptism, if you think it is? Do you think it's similar? I don't know. So it's, <clears throat> it's the outward sign of a covenant, of God's covenant. The Old Testament covenant, the physical sign was circumcision. The New Testament covenant is baptism. Yeah, that's a good answer. Do you have something else? No, it's just interesting to me that like circumcision was such a like a physical, like permanent sign. You know, it was like on you, and we don't we don't have that anymore. Like we don't get to walk around like I'm in a covenant relationship with God. You know, but it'd be kind of cool if baptism like left a mark. You know, like <laughs> I don't know, like something that would be like visible. Yeah, I think we got it easy. Yeah. So it's like baptism. Um, you're blank. They're both signs of faith. Paul makes this connection. So if you don't see a connection, Paul did. Colossians 2, 10 through 12. In Christ you've been brought to fullness. Sorry, to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. And so circumcision was a sign and a covenant that was for a single ethnic group. It's another thing. Uh, whereas baptism is a sign of the new covenant that is for all people. Um, and maybe that's why it's a more universal thing, perhaps. Of course, baptism also includes the Holy Spirit. And again, whatever baptism is to you, it's a central uh, concept, and it is a sign of that covenant. Not that it saves you any more than circumcision saved uh, the Israelites or gave them the covenant. Covenant was something that God gifted them, but it was a sign of it. Um, so, all right, let's get into, uh, let's see. Yeah, Isaac and Jacob. All right, so, and this is a little bit out of order, but who's Isaac? Um, Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, the father of Jacob. His name means he will laugh, because Sarah laughed, because um, she didn't believe that it was going to happen. Uh, he's one of uh, the three patriarchs of the Israelites, the only one whose name was not changed, and he's the only one who didn't move out of Canaan. Uh, he died when he was 180 years old, and he was the longest lived of the three. Um, and this is interesting. What were Isaac's failures? Does anyone know? He didn't really have any. He's like, he's like kind of the, the good one. So he didn't do anything too terrible. Maybe that's why he lived the longest. I don't know. Um, there's something that I want to get into. I think this is probably the most interesting part of tonight. So kind of rally here. That was a long one. But um, this is a concept that was uh, put, on, uh, put to me by someone. I can't remember. Uh, Dr. Libby actually told me this. But this idea of where is the lamb, and that is your blank there, uh, or the idea of where is the sacrifice. I think there's some really cool similarities between this part of Genesis and Jesus's ministry. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of read through this. Some of this is on your sheet, but most of it's not. Um, so God promises in Genesis 3 that there will be a sacrifice. And so there's this idea of this, uh, you know, step, stepping on the head of the snake. If you know that verse, uh, we, we see it as, I guess, like maybe the earliest prophecy of Jesus, but a, a wounded victor that will defeat evil at its source. And so basically the serpent will strike the heel, but you know, then he'll, he'll crush the head of the snake, if you know that verse and what I'm alluding to. Um, so the Old Testament has this air of anticipation there for a sacrifice. Genesis 22, uh, Isaac is going up on the mountain with Abraham, and uh, he says, Father, and yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So this question of <coughs> where is the sacrifice, where is the lamb? Of course, in verse 13, the Lord provides a ram, and they later named the mountain the Lord will provide. So then you fast forward to John the Baptist in John 1, and uh, he says that the lamb is here. Okay, kind of pointing to the same question, where is the lamb? Well, the lamb is here. John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, interestingly, love is used first in the Bible in Genesis 22, 2, when he says, uh, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. And then love is used for the first time in the New Testament, Matthew 3, in verse 17, where he says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so in Genesis 22, you see this basically the same verbiage, you could say. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sacrifice him. And then Matthew 3 the, the dove that, ascend, that descends, and then the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm, I'm well pleased. And so obviously there is a connection between these two stories, which I think if you've been in the church for long enough, you've heard this many times, but it's pretty cool how deep the connection runs. Is Abraham's sac sacrifice of Isaac foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus on the mountain. Uh, 
plays out even more and maybe d- defines it in more depth in Hebrews 11, so the hall of fame of faith, that chapter. But by faith, Abraham, who, uh, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And so I think that's one thing maybe we don't recognize about this is that he was doing what God told him. I think I think of his you know, act to try and sacrifice his son as like an act of faith, but he was doing it in such a way that he thought that God could raise him from the dead. I don't really think I get that second part of it. That he didn't necessarily, it wasn't that like he was just doing it out of faith. He's like, well, I guess I'll just kill him. He knew this covenant had to go through him, so he would have had to believe that he would have raised Isaac from the dead, which is something I don't know that I appreciate that part. Um, and so obviously, in the same way that Jesus was killed because God knew that he himself could raise him from the dead. So anyway, I hope that's cool to you. But I, I like this idea of how the, the where is the lamb concept, that question is answered through Jesus. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, Jacob. Let's talk really quickly about Jacob who's definitely, without a doubt, the worst of all these guys. Um, but Jacob later get, given the name Israel. He was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and the younger uh, twin brother of Esau. I love how they drew Esau in that little video, just hairy and like a little fullback. But um, Jacob had 12 sons and at least one daughter by his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he also had two handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah. Uh, Jacob's failure as well, he had a lot. And the blank there is deceiver, because his name means deceiver or heel grabber. So he literally grabbed the heel of Esau. Um, so that's what Jacob means. So you know he has to have a lot of failures if his name is Deceiver. Um, he steals his brother's birthright and blessing by deceiving his old blind father. It's pretty terrible. He ends up marrying four wives, even though he only loves one of them, Rachel. I think it's ironic, though, that he gets deceived by his uncle Laban. You probably know the story. He works seven years for him to get Rachel, and he gets Leah instead who all we know of him her is that she had bad eyesight or that she had weak eyes. I think she was just unattractive, whatever that means exactly. But um, then he works another seven years to get Rachel. Uh, But I do think the process humbles him from what we can tell. Um, And so then the question of, well, how is God faithful despite his failures? Well, Jacob ends up wrestling with God. God decides to bless him, changes his name to Israel. So Jacob actually wrestles with God sort of demanding this blessing, which is really interesting. It seems like a bad idea. Um, I think some of this, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it's interesting to think that after you wrestle with God, it's probably going to have an impact on you. In, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And so they've kind of joked that maybe he walked with a staff because God had injured him. So he had a little limp. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe he's just an old guy. But I think it's funny to think of, but a very, very flawed guy, like in every possible way. He would be the, uh, the villain in most movies or most books. Okay. All right. And then Jacob's sons. And so we'll kind of wrap with this. Um, who are Jacob's sons? Can anyone name all of Jacob's sons? I know Anna can. She wants to. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I can just like her, but Reuben. Nope. Well, you got to do them in order. <laughs> Can't do them out of order. Can you do it? You know, they're yeah. learning it in, well, in Libby's class at church. 
We should get, get Libby. We'll see. Just kidding. I, I could not do it if that makes you feel better. Ruben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dad, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Does anyone know his daughter? Dinah. There you go. Great job. Um, is it weird that they had 12 sons and one daughter? Isn't that weird? Okay. I think it's weird. Um, all right. So what were, what were Jacob's son's failures? Well, I talked about the video, but yeah. Well, one of Jacob's failures is he showed favoritism to Joseph. That's not good. And he showed favoritism because it was from his wife, the only one he loved, which is really messed up. Like, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. So having um, four wives is... Well, having four wives and only loving one of them and loving the firstborn of your only, like, wife you love. And Benjamin got a raw deal, too. Like, he's, like, not as special <laughs> as the first. I mean, it's just, it's really messed up. So, poor guy. Um, and so, uh, obviously, this makes Jacob's... Ten other sons, I guess Benjamin gets off the hook, he doesn't, he's like, oh, I'm the youngest, I don't care, but uh, they hate Joseph, they pretend to kill him, you know, they put him in a little pit, and they sell him into slavery into Egypt. What a terrible thing, that's awful. Um, well, how was God faithful despite these failures? You know this story, but God orchestrates Joseph's release from prison, and he ultimately ascends to the second position of power under Pharaoh. And so this verse that we, we talked about earlier, I think is beautiful, it sort of summarizes the whole book, but your blanks are, you intended to harm me? But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I would say that this is what Genesis and really the Bible is about. And so I think you could take this any number of ways, but you could take it in, in terms of the world. In the world, Satan is, is the prince of this world. Satan can harm us in many ways. We can harm ourselves with sinful decisions. Um, but God intends for good for those that are a part of his covenant. And this is this idea, again, of present suffering and future glory. I have this whole section from Romans 8, uh, 18 through 31, because I love it, and I'm going to read it. Um, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that, we will, uh, that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager an, uh, expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Um, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, so obviously Paul, and my favorite chapter of the whole Bible, um, talking about these same sorts of ideas. Um, so here's a question. I don't know if this is like going to be one that you'll want to discuss um, like openly necessarily, but I think these are good questions to meditate on. Is What are ways in which you see yourself consistently failing? And then the next question is, how has God been faithful despite your repeated failures? 
I think this is the question and the answer of Genesis. And so I think these are good questions to sort of ask. Um, I don't know if it's the sort of thing you'd be comfortable discussing. But kind of think on that. What are ways in which you see yourself consistently failing? And then how has God been faithful despite your repeated failures? Um, I think as, as Christmas is upon us, Advent has just started. This idea that, that Jesus came to us in the form of a baby to save us and that he will come again, second Advent. I think it's a beautiful time to think through some of these ideas and kind of this cycle, the cycle of failure and redemption and failure and redemption. I think of, of Jesus coming in, in an earthly sense, failing or dying, but then being redeemed and being resurrected. I think that's a, that cycle is, is beautiful, that God takes broken things and makes them something beautiful. Um, I think also when we think about Christmas, it's obviously about the birth of a king and of a savior, but it's also very much about God and the people he created in his image. Okay, so God wouldn't have need to send, needed to send his son as a human if he had not created us as humans. And so we're a part of this story. And this story starts in Genesis 1, in the beginning. I think it's part of this story and it carries all the way on through until uh, Revelation when things that are to come happen. Um, God has a plan for us. The people created in his image and despite our failures, God is faithful to his promises. Uh, we may not see the fruit of those promises in this life, but we will in the next life. And end with Hebrews 11, and then maybe we can discuss some off the podcast. But this is Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. This is speaking of these people of faith. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. I like that. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All right, so that is all for Genesis, a, an amazing book, uh, all 50 chapters of it, uh, a lot of mystery, a lot of beauty, and uh, certainly profound in so many different ways, and still relevant today to, obviously, uh, Jews, um, Muslims, and to Christians for different reasons, but it is the beginning of so much, and it is the, uh, the first words of a God that inspired men to write about him. Um, so I think that it bears repeated study, and I think also it, it bears... Um, uh, I guess us to be careful in the ways in which we interpret it um, and the things that we could make more important than maybe they need to be. And I guess that's what I see more times than not with Genesis is that, let's say of the creation narrative, for example, that uh, we could take it to mean one thing and if we only allow people to think of it in that way, that, that can have a drastic impact on how they see Jesus. And I don't think that's why Genesis is there, and I don't think that's why Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are there, is to stand as a roadblock for people to believe Jesus. Um, and so whatever the creation narrative is or isn't, um, I think it should only serve as a bridge to faith in Christ, and certainly not as a block to that. Um, we talked a little bit about that after the group and discussed in, in, in that way, and I think that there's an example that uh, that Ryan kind of gave of how there was a famous 
a Christian author that shared all the different interpretations of Genesis 1 through 11 over the you know past several hundred years from all these extremely intelligent men and women and people who had studied this for their whole lives. And it was funny to see how different their interpretations all were. So I think this author's conclusion, this author who had major PhDs, I think it was a PhD from Harvard, and then a PhD from a very um, well-regarded Hebrew school for Old Testament. He had these two PhDs, New Testament, Old Testament. His uh, conclusion was, if you think you have the only way of understanding Genesis 1 through 11, you're probably wrong. So, I think the takeaway from Genesis, though, of course, and what we talked about, the recurring theme is, is that the people of God make mistakes, and then God is still faithful to His covenant and to His promise, and that God finds a way to redeem uh, the sins of His people. So I think that is really the theme of the Bible in general, is that things that look like they are bad will be made good by God one day. Things that are broken will be made whole uh, through uh, God's glory one day. If not today, one day in the future. Um, I appreciate you guys for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, David is going to teach on Exodus and Leviticus the week after. Then we'll teach on Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that will wrap for the year of 2018. We have another semester to go in 2019. We hope that you'll be with us. And uh, best of luck to you with all the things that are going on right now. If you're in the Memphis area you'd like to attend, definitely reach out to me. You're more than welcome to come on Monday nights. That's all I've got for this week. Hope you have a blessed week. We will see you next time on the MD DDS podcast. Thank you so much. Goodbye.